This is the View from the Couch podcast, and I'm your host, Pierce Wiesenar. In today's episode, we're taking a look at Oathbreaker, the third episode from this sixth season of Game of Thrones. Got to start things off at one place, and you can only start things off beyond the wall. Once again, Thrones takes a step back in time, going to a certain infamous tower. For the show, for the show audience, it's a scene that has pretty much little meaning besides a pretty awesome fight scene. However, this iconic scene is one of the most hotly debated and talked about moments in all of A Song and Ice and Fire lore. The fight choreography certainly lived up to the hype, as this battle is one of the most well-known in all of Westeros. In the books, it was seven against three. In the show, it was seven against two. But there could be another Kingsguard in the tower. It was nice to see Ned's honor almost get him killed, unwilling to bend in the face of death. Say hello to Howlin' Reed, everyone, one of the most important characters that has ever has never been seen before on page as well as on screen. Attempting to give this scene any context pretty much gives it all away. And if you've read any article about this scene or the flashback before, or the previous scene with Bran and Thread Raven, then this one is going to be spoiled for you. So I won't do that. But I will discuss what they're potentially going to be doing with this scene and how they kind of reveal what it's all about. And it looks like, for me, that they're going to be taking the very scenic route with this one, as this could be the only thing Bran does all season long. The Three-Eyed Raven wants to show Bran something and wants him to learn something, but however, every time Bran gets a little closer to finding out what's really going on, they return to the present and Bran gets a slap on the wrist. So it's kind of frustrating, because obviously he wants to know and grow in his powers, but... The Three-Eyed Raven has to learn how to become a better teacher. For someone who's been in a cave for a thousand years, really, and kind of preparing for all this, he's got to figure out what is going on, because stretching out this plot point is not making for fun viewing, and the show, once again, has the invisible hand of the writers just guiding this, because this is a frustrating thing. A lot of book readers have been waiting for this for a while, and just be teased every few episodes, or every episode so far, it makes very little sense. So they got to figure a way to either speed it up, like with what they've done with Arya, who we'll talk about later, and Jon, who we will talk about next, or just like not show it at all. It's very weird, the pacing of certain things, certain storylines throughout the entire series. Now at Castle Black, Jon is back from the dead, to the shock of everyone but the viewing audience. I like the silence that Jon showed, how he, how he got to see how Jon really tried to take it all in. His death, his return from death, and the emotional impact of who killed him, and so many other things that were some pretty heavy things to deal with for anyone, especially if you just came back from the dead. If that moment was done wrong or in less capable hands, the emotional payoff would have been very cheap. That scene showed that Thrones has some quality acting among some very other moving pieces of the show. Melisandre's shock continues to show her lack of faith and depths of her doubt. When asked John what he saw when he was dead, John said nothing. His answer mirrored what Beric Dondarrion told Melisandre a few seasons ago. Where her character moves forward is one of the biggest question marks at Castle Black at this moment. It sounds like she's all uh, she's all aboard the John the John Snow bandwagon, but let's not jump to any conclusions just yet. It was a funny but also a very odd exchange of dialogue between John and Davos. John asked why he came back from the dead to the guy who pretty much begged on hands and knees that Melisandre try to bring him back from the dead, and then to hear Davos say that it didn't really matter that Jon is now alive was 
Very, very weird. And then Davos gives a really great pep talk, saying that life is all about cleaning up shit and fighting. Those are just the words you want to hear when you've been alive for a couple of minutes. Davos this season has been very strange, to put it mildly. So hopefully he'll get back to his old self soon and stop this game of uh, believing in magic and putting his faith in Mel when he hates Mel because in some aspects he kind of blames Mel for the death of his son. Yes, he had a family a long time ago, in case you don't remember. So this very weird him kind of like Jorah, I think, are just going to be continued towards the end of this, towards the end of the series, going to be forced to be to become more than one book characters at once. Like Jorah's, over the course of season five, was about three or four different characters over the course of one season. So it was very strange for that to happen and kind of hope that it stops happening, that Davos can just be Davos. But after announcing his resurrection to the folks at Castle Black and saying hello to a couple of old friends, John has to do what all people do who come back from the dead do, and that is kill the folks that killed him. Once again, Thrones had the chance to give some book readers a classic line of dialogue in Ed, Fetch Me a Block. We didn't get it when Jano Slint died, and we could have gotten it in this episode. I half expected a mass beheading, but hanging them is a much easier cleanup job. And John ends his watch and the episode with a fantastic closing line. I wish the show did take a minute to kind of tell the audience, or show the audience, that John is technically freed from his vows to the Night's Watch, it would have cleared up a couple of questions for the show-watching audience. Nevertheless, nevertheless, freed from his vows, where and what does John do next? And in the Narrow Sea, in case you're wondering what happened to Sam and Jilly and Gilly, now Thrones lets you know. No Thrones didn't forget them, but you might have, as they haven't been on screen or heard from in quite some time. Sam is on, a, is on his maester quest and trying to find out how to kill those pesky white walkers. In a moment strictly for the book readers, we see that Sam's going to be heading to Horn Hill. We get to meet the Tarleys and his father, Lord Randall Tarley. From what we hear of him in the books, Sam's dad is something else. A, heart and, a hard and very stern man, the exact opposite of his son. When Sam eventually heads to Horn Hill, it'll be a strange encounter, as Sam technically doesn't have a family or a home really to go to. Give up a lot when he joins the night when he joined the Night's Watch. So I wonder if that gets mentioned or how the how or how the Tarleys are gonna deal with a son they really never expected to hear from again. But he shows up with a girl and a baby named after their son. Interesting times indeed will be coming to the drama at Horn Hill. And at Winterfell, the introduction of Lord Small John Umber is up there with the best bit of dialogue in the entire series. His banter was a welcome addition to the show, and at first I thought he would bring Theon, but instead he brings Rickon and Asha. Then he kills Shaggy Dog. Rickon's a direwolf, so let's, let's all collectively just pour out some Dornish wine for Shaggy Dog. It was nice knowing you. And after the prolonged disappearance of Balon and Bran, it's really nice to see Rickon and Asha return. They haven't been seen from or heard from in quite some time. However, they really could all just be a ruse. Just like Theon pretending to kill Brandon Rickon, could Small John have pretended to kill Shaggy Dog and really have killed some random black dog, some random black wolf? Because if you do some science looking at it, the head of Grey Wind, Rob's dire wolf, and then taking a look at Shaggy Dog's head, certain the size doesn't really match up. Because direwolves are pretty large. They are pretty darn large. So that looked pretty small for a direwolf's head. So 
it would be some poetic justice to see Ramsey die at the hands of a direwolf or a dog if this was just another way to try to pretend to give Rickon and Asha over to Ramsey in order to build some trust and gain some loyalty with the new Lord Bolton. And the North, they love the Starks, so it would be very odd to see another Northern house try to get in bed with the Boltons like the Karstarks have. Is the Grand Northern Conspiracy alive and well in the show, or is this another case of fans trying to read a little too much into things, like when many of us believe that Stannis was still alive because we never saw his body? Now, all the elements are in place for a certain pink letter to arrive in the mailbox of John at Castle Black. The pink letter in the books has created much discussion about who the author is and what is the truth in relation to the contents of said letter. Nevertheless, Bastard Bowl is happening as John will battle Ramsay because we saw a certain big northern battle in the trailers. Now in King's Landing, with Varys off in Marine, Kyburn is the new master of whispers. The paranoia of Cersei desires to have all, all number of spies all over the realm, getting reports about their enemies and with Sir Robert Strong to crush them, there aren't too many people that can really stand against them. Now, I'm just not sure there's enough Dornish sweets for Kyburn to do all of that. In case you're wondering where real power lies in the capital, the small council is where it is at. Uncle Kevin Lannister and Lady Olena Tyrell make a glorious return and a fantastic power couple for the Lannister twins to butt heads with. The interruption and use of chairs was a nice callback to a certain scene with Tywin and Tyrion a couple of seasons ago. Now, I was very surprised to hear that the uprising in Dorne had reached the capital so soon. Once again, the ballad of King Tommen is played by all who wield any influence in the capital. Last season, it was Cersei and Queen Marjorie. This season, it's been between Jaime, it's Cersei, and now the High Sparrow tries to play a new tune with the king. Last week, Tommen asked his mother how to be strong, and this episode shows the king surrounded by guards and yelling at the High Septon. True strength indeed. Instead of fighting fire with fire, the High Septon does the opposite. The battle brewing between the crown and the faith has the king in the crosshairs and playing his young and playing on his young heart and emotions. I like that it's not very clear what the motives are really for the faith. Are they truly just do-gooders trying to clean up the city? Or do they have some other less than ideal motives? And in Bravos, in another bit of plot convenience, Arya gets her own Rocky-esque training montage. This was something that really could have been mined creatively to some pretty great results. However, for example, we could have gotten some mythology for the faithless, for the faith, faceless, not faithless, faceless men, for example. Instead, we get a couple of trainees just banging sticks. Once again, uh, again, another plot has been cut short in order to speed things up. Why was Arya blind again? Was it supposed to build up her other senses? I really never got the sense that her hearing or smell, for example, grew because she had to rely on her other senses. This just was another time that the show really could have given the viewing audience a better context. Instead, we got a lot, a lot more mystery. I feel that the faceless men and their training has been quite easy for Arya. While getting beat up is no walk in the park, I really don't remember her really doing anything anything of note since arriving in Bravos. The one time she did do something in killing Marin Trent, she goes blind. So no matter how many times she says that she is no one, I just don't believe it because you've shown me that you're still Arya Stark underneath all of this window dressing. If becoming a member of the greatest assassin posse is this easy, 
Why doesn't everybody do it? And in Marine, Varys is a character that is shrouded in mystery. We, we never see him work. We kind of just hear or see his results. And as a master of whispers, he's the best. But the show has also sprinkled a couple of scenes that take us behind the curtain. First, we get a scene with the mystic who cut Varys. And now we get a look at how Varys gets his information. Varys always has great dialogue and has fantastic presence on screen. As your eyes are always drawn to him. And probably the worst scene since the debacle at Dorne in the season premiere, we get Tyrion trying to get to know Grey Worm and Missandei. It was supposed to be a play for laughs, but there were just no laughs. I understand why Grey Worm and Missandei were silent. The two really haven't had much screen time with Tyrion and don't know him like we, the viewing audience, do. Remember, he's only been a Marine for really a short, a short time, so they don't really know him and Tyrion doesn't really know him, so I understand it but it just didn't really work on screen. And with a few birds flying around in Slaver's Bay, hopefully something fun will happen in Marine. Maybe a couple dragons are released, maybe there's a battle brewing outside Marine, as well as within, so something's going to happen. We really just don't know how long the show will drag this out for. Is it going to be a big end-of-season confrontation, big battle, like Tyrion as the general, as the general with the Battle of Blackwater Bay in Season 2, or is this going to be like uh, you sprinkle things out, have a mid-season dust-up, and then have a couple of battles in between? I'm, I'm not too sure what they're really trying to do with the pacing for this one. As, as I said before, certain key storylines get paced a lot different than other storylines within the show. And to wrap things up in Vast Dothrak, is anyone else kind of confused as to why Danny has such a weird look on her face throughout the entire this entire episode? She's been here before. It's where she ate the heart of a horse in season one. She perpetually has a look of confusion, as if she's never been here before. But she has. As if she's never heard of any key parts of Dothraki culture. She was, she was married to a Kal. She, she's, like, she's a... It makes no sense why she doesn't know any of this. However, I understand why Danny doesn't know any of this. She's an avatar for the audience. But it still feels extremely just off for me. Like, it's just very weird. She has to be strange... If you make everything look strange and everything has to be so confused for her so that certain things for the audience can just be explained. And while I appreciate that, it's just really weird to have this character be so confused and be the Avatar. It would have been different if there was someone else. Like if she got, if she was uh, taken away from the dragon and maybe she picked picked up a slave or, for, or a former slave or something like that. And then they could have like a buddy cop road adventure and then they were explaining all of this stuff to her with Danny being next to her. It would have been a lot better, but for Danny to be confused about all the stuff that she actually does know makes her just very strange viewing. However, moving along, there was a nice contrast between Danny and her various titles and the crones, who are the old school women who remained with the Kalsar and their role in society. It was a nice bit of contrast between the New Age feminism and the traditional role of women in certain cultures. For all her strength, Danny is still a damsel in distress that may or may not be rescued by the men in her life. Whether it's by sword, by dragon fire, or by Danny just doing it herself, she really won't be staying in Vast Dothrak for too long. And next episode, we potentially are going to be getting a King's Mood at Pike, where a new king for the Iron Islands will be chosen, and for lack of a better term, a new we're gonna get a king a cow moot as they decide what cities these all the cows are gonna be sacking over the next I don't know season 
or infinite amount of time because we don't really hang out with the cows. And during this meeting, the fate of Danny will be revealed in a vast Dothrak. So a spicy encounter indeed for Khaleesi. Now taking a look at the various amount of theories that the show has either debunked or confirmed Sir Robert Strong in the books has now been 100% confirmed that his identity is Gregor Gregor Clegane or the Mountain. Something that was we all kind of knew, but we all kind of needed to hear someone actually say the name. Oh, Robert Strong is also the Mountain, and they did a pretty great job of that when they pretty much just said, oh, look, pointing at him, looking right at the camera and saying, that's Gregor Clegane. And with Sir Robert Strong being Gregor Gregor Clegane, that is a quite the tongue twister, and him pretty much being representing the crown and with a battle against the faith, pretty much going to be a huge battle. And with Jamie saying, now that's a fight I want to see. Now, a real fight many people want to see is Clegane Bowl. Now, depending on how things shake out over the course of this season, we might be getting a certain look at a certain Septon, I think his name is Septon Maribold. He is a Septon that is off in the Riverlands, and with the show going back to the Riverlands, looking at trailers, that's show Brian and Pod going back to Riverrun, and Jamie and Riverrun as well. We might get that Septon introducing a certain Clegane that we haven't seen in quite some time. Now, another theory that has been talked about that uh, that I talked about in the episodes, Grand Northern Conspiracy, as well as the Pink Letter, the Grand Northern Conspiracy, it's all of the Northern Houses conspiring, Bolton says, they want to put the Starks back in power. In the Pink Letter, that is one that a lot more educated people can break down for you in a lot better of a way than I ever could. The Pink Letter, it has Ramsey saying Stannis is dead, that he has uh, Sansa in the books, but Sansa in the books is not Sansa in the books. It's very confusing. If you haven't read the books, it's Ramsey telling John, I have you, I have your sister, your king is dead, and I'm at Winterfell. Come meet me and let's fight. John says, I want to go and I want to fight. And that's why in the books he gets stabbed to death. He doesn't get stabbed to death because he gets all buddy buddy with the Wildings. He gets stabbed to death because he wants to leave the, the Night's Watch. And uh, as Lord Commander, it's just one of those things you just can't really do. And the final theory that is quasi confirmed was the stuff going on at the Tower of Joy. Now, Ned always said that he killed Sir Arthur Dane, but they never really explained in the books how he did it. A lot of us really thought that it might have been a poison arrow, a poison dart from Hal and Reed, because Ned Stark always says that Hal and Reed kind of saved him, or it played a very important role in the Tower of Joy sequence and the, and the Tower of Joy fight, but it really was confirmed that it was a kind of a cheap or a very not honorable move by Sir Howland Reed. I don't think, no, he's not Sir Lord Al, Lord Howland Reed, and then he got that he stabbed Arthur Dane in the neck through the back from behind. So, not less than ideal when it comes to honor, but for Ned, you're alive, so you can't really complain. But with other things in the episode, as I said before, the pacing of certain plot lines were just all over the place. You get these very slow and methodical, and this taking the scenic route for Bran. And we get a training montage for Arya, for example. So it makes for very uneven storytelling and very an uneven feel when it comes to timing and pacing throughout the episode. And talking about episodes, next week it's titled Book of the Stranger. Tyrion strikes a deal, 
Jorah and Dario undertake a difficult task. Jamie and Cersei try to improve their situation. And from the trailer, we see Brienne, Pod, and Sansa arrive at Castle Black. So going to be a, hopefully a family reunion between Jon and Sansa. Littlefinger returns and it looks to try to get the Vale into the mix up north. So with that big bastard bull at the maybe end of the season, it looks like Littlefinger might be arriving with some troops because he we do see Littlefinger in the snow. So he might try to meet up outside Winterfell with a certain Lord Bolton or maybe with Sansa. We're not too sure. But we did see Littlefinger in snow, which kind of confirms him up north. Theon returns to Pike. I don't know how he got to Pike so quickly. If you look at a map of where Winterfell is and where the Iron Islands are, he got on a plot train and went choo-choo as quick as he can over water through the biggest bit of plot convenience since Littlefinger in like two episodes going from the Vale to the capital, King's Landing. Not sure how all this happens, but hey. It is the invisible hands of the writers moving characters all around the chessboard. And it appears that Marjorie is ready to talk, but the crown being Olena Tyrell and the Lannister twins cannot let that happen. So it kind of spices things up, confirms and and speeds up the plot line with the crown against the faith and Dora being Dario and Jora, they attempt to rescue Danny from Vastothrak during the Kalmut. So that's going to be interesting. It's going to be a lot of fun. Once again, it was a pretty good episode, aside from the pacing problems that are pretty much going to plague this entire season and have plagued this episode. But next week, we get a lot of fun stuff. We get some Kyle Moots, hopefully a King's Moot as well. So more Euron Greyjoy, the better, because he's a lot of fun. But this has been another episode of the View from the Couch podcast. Thanks for listening.